Hey everybody, this is Haley with the Sunshine and Color podcast and I hope you're all doing well, having a great day. I am so thankful to be having Savannah Weeks on for a second podcast recording and just a little bit of a background about her. She is a registered dietitian and licensed nutritionist and our previous episode we talked about eating disorders and body image and anorexia and where you can find help, how you can find resources and and go along that journey. And so today we are going to be talking about avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. This is something that Savannah works super closely with. And yeah, so Savannah, if you want to say, hey, give yourself a little introduction if I missed anything. Yeah. Um, hey, Haley, it's good to be back on. Um, I'm excited to talk about ARFID today. Um, yeah, this is something that I, I do a lot of work with and, you know, patients with this diagnosis. Um, so really excited to talk about it because it's something that's less well known than other eating disorders. Right. Yeah. I think that's definitely kind of our purpose here for this podcast today is just kind of explaining a little bit more about it. And I had no idea what it was until I met you and, and it's so interesting. So I'm excited to get a little deeper dive into it. And yes, it's also called ARFID for short. So if you hear us saying that, that's what it is. Um, so yeah, can you just kind of explain what is ARFID and I guess just we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah. So ARFID stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Um, that's quite a mouthful. So we, we mainly just call it ARFID. Um, this is a newer diagnosis. So that's partly why it's less well known. Um, this diagnosis uh, didn't exist prior to the DSM-5, which came out in 2013. So that's not to say that um, the disorder didn't exist. People definitely, you know, have had this disorder. We're struggling with it, but we didn't have the diagnosis label of ARFID until 2013. Um, so the research is still very much, you know, developing and ongoing. Um, so this is kind of a, you know, in terms of treatment, a newer, a newer thing. So in terms of what ARFID is, um, so it's characterized by a lack of interest in eating or food in general, um, avoiding foods because of certain sensory characteristics. So for example, only eating soft foods and avoiding all like crunchy or hard foods or only eating certain colors, like only eating beige foods and avoiding foods with any other colors. Um, avoiding eating because of a fear of adverse consequences like choking, gagging, vomiting, um, or, you know, any other bad outcome. Um, so, you know, Gen in general, this looks like really, really narrow diet varieties. So eating, you know, like five to 10 foods. Oftentimes people with ARFID eat really small amounts as well. Um, and a, a really intense fear of new foods. So this leads to some pretty significant like physical and social consequences. Um, so people with ARFID often are underweight or malnourished um, because of their limited diets. And people with ARFID often find that they can't take part in so, you know, social situations with food, like birthday parties or holidays like Thanksgiving. Mm, yeah, it's so interesting because it sounds, and as we had talked in our previous episode, anorexia is super tied with the mental aspect and thinking about body image and your worth. And it's all tied to this kind of moral 
part of who you are, but this is more of a physical type um, psychological theory behind it, it seems. Um, is that right? Yeah, so like getting into the differences between the two, right? The differences between ARFID and anorexia. Um, like you said, there's there's a really big body image component in anorexia, like that's what mm -hmm. drives the food restriction. Um, and so that the main difference between the two is that there's no body image component in ARFID. So someone with ARFID isn't, you know, overly concerned about their weight or their shape or their size. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fear is around food itself, not like gaining weight because of eating food. Um, so that that's the major difference. If if someone has, you know, is restricting their food intake because they want to lose weight, um, you know, in an unhealthy manner, then that's that's not offered anymore. That's a different diagnosis. Gotcha. So those are the, the major differences. Um, some of the other like kind of smaller differences is ARFID is, um, is actually more common in boys than in girls, um, which is of course different from anorexia, which was much more common in females than in males. Um, ARFID also tends to um, present much earlier than anorexia. So people with ARFID are often diagnosed at much earlier ages than someone with anorexia. Um, and in terms of like, you know, psychological comorbidities, um, there's a pretty strong correlation between like ADHD and autism spectrum disorder and ARFID, um, and sometimes even like OCD traits, um, which isn't, isn't a strong of a correlation for anorexia. Okay, interesting. And so it almost seems as if this is just something that is kind of ingrained in you is this yeah. Not necessarily fear, I guess, but just this not want for certain types of food, I guess. Is is that right? Yeah. So um, it's a little bit of both, right? Like okay. it's kind of like the nature versus nurture debate, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there is some biological predisposition. Um, so, and this is true for all eating disorders, you know, there's certain personality traits that make you more at risk for an eating disorder, like for anorexia, being a perfectionist, right, makes you more as a risk factor for anorexia. Um, for ARFID, um, there's, uh, there's some thought that uh, people with ARFID are super tasters, so they have a higher concentration of taste buds on their tongue, and so they experience food in a more intense manner than someone with, that's not a super taster would. Um, mm. so, and we, we often see, when I have families coming for assessment at my clinic, um, something that I've heard multiple times for kids who receive an ARFID diagnosis is that they've struggled with eating since birth. You know, like mom will say, we had issues with breastfeeding. Like my child had a really, you know, difficult time latching. And then when we transitioned to solid foods, it was it was a really big struggle. Um, so often there have been issues around eating for a really long time. Okay, that makes sense. And so how does it look when you're treating a patient and what does the recovery process look like for these individuals? Because I guess you're not necessarily having to work on the personal side necessarily saying like you are loved so you can eat the food and like work through this. So how do you kind of uh, walk along those lines and I guess work on introducing new foods maybe? Yeah. Yeah. So um, when it comes to treatment, um, 
the first part of treatment is always like uh, achieving a healthy weight and correcting any nutrition deficiencies. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, that's usually where we're starting. Not always, not all kids with ARCID um, are underweight. Sometimes they are able to support their body's needs through their diet, but for a lot of them, because their diet is so limited and they have such low interest in food, often we need to do some catch-up growth, like we need to gain some weight to be healthy. Um, vitamin and mineral deficiencies are are actually pretty rare. So much of our food in the U.S. is fortified and enriched, um, and kids with ARFID are often eating like processed packaged foods. So most of the time, like we don't have to correct deficiencies like that. Sometimes we do. Um, so once once we're in a healthy, you know, at a healthy weight and nutritionally stable, then we start working on addressing the food avoidance. Um, so that means trying new foods. And that is something that is really, really terrifying to people with ARFID. Um, most mm -hmm. of my patients are pretty young, not, not all of them, but most of them are like eight to 12 years old. Um, yeah. So then at my clinic, the youngest, the youngest that we see is eight. So there, there are definitely kids younger than this who are struggling with ARFID, but my patient population is, you know, eight to 24 ish. Um, so the way that we do that is really slow and steady. Um, so starting with really small amounts of food, research shows that repetition of exposure is, is the most important thing. So mm. you know, if, if you were someone with ARFID and we were working on a new food, let's say we're working on carrots, I wouldn't give you a whole plate of carrots and say, okay, you have to eat this whole plate of carrots. Um, what we would do is take like one baby carrot or half a baby carrot or one bite of a carrot. And we would start there and we would do it over and over every day. Um, so mm -hmm. most of the time we're working on foods for a week, two weeks, maybe more. And so it's the small amounts every day and that repetition is the most important thing. Okay. It's, it's really cool that it, that you said the repetition is the most important thing because you're kind of relearning and retraining and the more close that you get to that food or just kind of the healthier behavior in general and it'll just like kind of become that habit and the new lifestyle I guess or you get less scared because you're getting more exposed to it every day. Exactly exposure that's mm -hmm. that's the so our fit is kind of self-reinforcing right mm -hmm. so kids are fit have negative predictions about food so sometimes I'll say they get their crystal balls out and you know when I present them with a new food and they say I'm gonna hate this or I'm gonna vomit if I eat this or I'm gonna gag if I eat this and so they're making these negative predictions right of if I eat this food this bad thing is gonna happen to me um, and so the reason that exposures are so effective is because we're challenging that prediction, right? And so we're learning that I eat this food and something bad doesn't happen to me. And sometimes kids do gag, you know, so mm -hmm. I've had a comment in my office before. Um, so sometimes those things do come true. And part of treatment as well is like facing those fears and those adverse consequences and learning that, okay, I gag, but I'm going to be okay still. And I might vomit, but I'm going to be okay still. And I can do it again. Mm. So, you know, breaking that, that re self-reinforcing, right. Of like, if I don't eat this food, nothing bad happens to me. And so we, we have to eat the food to, you know, break those negative predictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to go into that a little bit. So 
I guess, like the facing the fear aspect, because mm-hmm. in life we have to like face these fears. So I wonder kind of when you see someone recover, how do they end up? Are they able to kind of just like live more comfortably in a healthy lifestyle? Like how long does it take? And is this something that they're going to be struggling with for the rest of their lives? Or is this something that they've really gone through it and they'll maybe have to do a little bit of work outside of recover or the treatment process? But yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's different for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the answer for, an, you know, any eating disorder. Exactly, yeah. Um, but in general, um, it depends. So the younger a child is, the easier this is. Um, so research shows that the earlier that we address this, like the better the outcome is. And that's not to say that if you're, you know, a young adult that, you, you know, you can't address this. Like I'm not saying that at all, but it, it will be harder, right? Because you've had more time to reinforce the ARFID. It's, it's harder to address those, um, the rigidity around food. Um, so I find that the younger kids tend to you know, move along a little faster. Um, For a lot of kids, it is something that they're going to have to work at, you know, lifelong. Um, But not always. Um, But, you know, the most important thing is that once, once we've worked on a food and we've incorporated it into the diet, like carrots, for example, if, you know, we worked on carrots for three weeks, and now a child can eat, you know, a one of those little like snack baggie of um, baby carrots. Like we have to have that as a snack regularly because if, mm. if the child stops having it regularly, then we're gonna go back to not eating that food. Um, and then we have to kind of start over. So that's that's the most important thing for, you know, recovery or moving past our fit is once we've incorporated a food, we gotta keep going with it. I have a lot of kids who, um, they crack me up sometimes. They're like, oh, we're, we're moving on to a new food so I never have to eat this other food again. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what I say. <laughs> um, so sometimes they're like, okay, I got through this. Like we did it for a couple of weeks. Um, uh-huh. Now I never have to do it again. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, Stubborn. That's so funny. Yeah. But, and sometimes, you know, they find one and then they start requesting it at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's really fun when that happens is they, they find kind of a new favorite food. Um, but we have to make sure that we don't get stuck on that food now. Yeah. So it's it's a lot of, you know, intention around diet and making sure that we're planning the variety because if we don't, we fall back into our old habits, right? Like kind of like what you were talking about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, that's really cool. So if I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh, I may be... Mm, showing that I might have ARFID or I may know someone that has ARFID, what can I do and and how do I kind of go from here with that? Yeah, so if, you know, if this is resonating with you and you think, you know, I've always been a picky eater, but maybe this is something a little bit beyond pickiness. Right. Um, yeah, I would suggest like looking for someone who specializes in eating disorders and going for an assessment or an intake. Because um, I think, you know, if, if you have that concern, you have that concern for a reason, right? Like picky eating is somewhat common, but ARFID, ARFID goes beyond that. Um, so some of the places you can look are um, NIDA's website, so National Eating Disorders Association. Um, they have a fine treatment tool. Their website is nationaleatingdisorders.org. Um, 
You can also find a dietitian on eatright.org. That's the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics website. Um, so, you know, I'd say start there, find someone to get an assessment with. Um, and, you know, there's, there's lots of books out there too. Um, most of them are geared towards parents. Um, so if you're, if you're a parent listening to this and you think this is resonating with you for your child, um, I would say find, find treatment um, and check out some books as well. Um, a really good um, RFID book that I've read is called Broccoli Boot Camp. Um, it's, it was by Keith Williams and Laura Sieverling. Um, another good one is Food Chaining by Sherry Freaker, Mark Fishbein, Sybil Cox, and Laura Walbert. Um, that one's a really good one that talks about kind of how, how to address both uh, food training and broccoli boot camp talk about like things you can do at home to address ARFID. Um, I would say if you know if, if you're going that route, I think having a, a treatment team can be very helpful to you. Um, and then the last book, which is geared towards young adults, is called The Picky Eater's Recovery Book. Um, that's by Kendra Thomas, uh, Kendra Becker, and Cameron Eddy. Um, so that one's more for adults. It's pretty hard to find resources around ARFID for adults, um, but that, that's a good one. Great. Thank you for sharing those books and those resources. I'll put the links below um, on the show notes and then also the links to Nita and eatright.org just so that way you can have those and um, you don't feel stuck after you start listening to this. But also yeah. I do want to address the importance of discerning the difference between picky eating and ARFID because we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier. ARFID's definitely more in depth and taking it more to um, like your behaviors are more on the extreme level, but um, I don't want anyone listening to this feeling like I'm a picky eater, but I don't know how to tell the difference if this is actually something that I should go seek out help for. Right. Yeah. So there's there's some level of like natural pickiness around food for kids. Right. And that that has some evolutionary advantages, um, you know, being kind of discerning about food because you know back in the day like there are things that are poisonous there are foods that could make you sick um so you know part of that is you know ingrained in us just biologically and evolutionarily right. um but our our food is like you said much more extreme um so you know where where our food goes beyond picky eating is really that the impact that it has on the person's life so the you know, the, the physical impact, the malnutrition, the, you know, stunting for growth, um, the social impact that it has, you know, if, if this is affecting your life, then it's time to seek treatment, mm -hmm. right? Because sometimes kids will grow out of picky eating, but someone is not going to grow out of perfect. That's something that, gotcha. that needs treatment. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Um, so, that being said, do you have any other kind of words of wisdom or insightful last notes, last thoughts on um, anything to do with recovery or body image or kind of maybe even what a healthy relationship with food looks like, um, just mm -hmm. coming from a, a nutritionist standpoint. Um, so that way we can just have that in the back of our minds going forward. Yeah, I think for ARFID specifically, um, I think keeping in mind for ARFID that the goal is not to be able to eat every food out in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
every person has food preferences, has things that they don't like, things that they're not going to eat. You know, like I hate olives. I'm never going to eat olives. Um, <laughs> and that's okay, right? Like we all have yeah. things that we don't like and it's okay that there are foods that we won't eat. Um, so for someone with ARFID, you know, knowing that if you go to treatment, the goal is not for you to, to taste every single food and then be able to eat every single food. The goal is to be able to eat something from every food group. So being able to eat fruits, vegetables, proteins, dairy, grains, um, to be able to support your body's needs through food and through you know oral nutrition. Um, so that's, that's often a fear that I hear is like, oh, you're gonna make me eat things that I really, really don't wanna eat. And yes, that might be true. I, I, you know, we might have to eat things that we really don't eat, but it's not gonna be you know, every single food out there in the world. Um, the other thing is that what we practice becomes easier, right? Like we're building habits necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and that fear will decrease with time as we practice eating new foods. Um, so that the daily practice, the daily exposure is, is the most important thing and it does get easier with time. Mm -hmm. And the other little tidbit that I always tell families um, for kids with ARFID is that liking comes later. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's often a really big focus for the families on if the kid is going to like the food or not like the food. Um, and liking is not what we're focusing on in the beginning. What we're focusing on is tolerance. Mm. So, you know, if, if we're working again on carrots, um, you might not like the carrots and that's okay. Um, what I want is for you to be able to tolerate the carrots. So to be able to eat a carrot without gagging without vomiting without crying um you know without pretty significant emotional distress you, you might not enjoy it you might not really like it but that's okay um yeah. and that's that's why the repeat exposures is so important um and we see this you know even with kids without ARFID you know, they say it takes like eight exposures for without ARFID to accept a food um for someone with ARFID, it could take you know 50 plus exposures for them to be able to accept a food. In the beginning, the distress and the avoidance is so high that they they can't really determine if they like it or if they if they don't. Yeah. Um, so liking comes later. We have to get past the the distress and past the anxiety and the fear before we can really tell if we like something or not. Mm -hmm. so, I think tolerate. that can definitely that can. I feel like go and be true for so many of the dis like disordered eating behaviors. Um, yeah. So that's, that's good to know. And I think it's also cool. I really like that you noted, we don't have to like everything because we mm -hmm. all have our own preferences. Like I don't like certain textured foods, but at the same time, I'm completely happy eating other foods that are of similar like goodness, I guess. Um, and little things like olives. Um, I love olives and that's okay. And you don't like olives and that's okay. So yeah, yeah, accepting the fact that we all have our different preferences, different taste buds and everything, but, um, it's, it's cool to know that, yeah, we need to sometimes try like with ARFID to introduce the different foods from different food groups and at least like introduce them because they are so important for your health and your well-being and your body. Do you have instances where a kid is just not going to accept it? They truly just don't like it at all? Or is this something to where you're like, oh my gosh, they actually really need this food? Or maybe we try different 
vegetable than carrots um, because they just cannot get over the texture and everything like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so we try lots of things, right? And we try, usually I take a food chaining approach. So um, starting with a food that the child already eats. So like chicken nuggets is the classic ARFID food, right? Like a lot of people with mm -hmm. ARFID eat chicken nuggets. So starting with chicken nuggets and going to a chicken tender and then going to like a grilled chicken nugget and then going to grilled chicken breast, um, mm. taking it really slow. And then, you know, you could work on condiments or different meats or, you know, whatever it is, like different presentations of chicken, like chicken pot pie or chicken alfredo or whatever. Um, and there have been times where we worked on a food and it just, just didn't happen. Uh, like I had a patient where we, we were trying scalloped potatoes because that was something that the family ate commonly as a side. Um, and we worked on scalloped potatoes for like two weeks, I think. And it was a struggle. It was a really big struggle. Um, it was mainly like a texture thing. Um, and so sometimes you just have to take a break and come back to it. And so then we went to a different food, like we went to mac and cheese next. And then we, we tried some other like kind of cheese saucy things. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, it's okay if there's a food that we really, really struggle with, we can kind of pivot to something similar and then come back to it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's so important that we eat a variety of textures, of tastes, of colors, of smells, um, because that's, you know, a well-rounded diet, right? Includes right. all of these. And for, for kids' development too, it's so important. Um, did I already talk about the teeth thing? I had a patient. Yeah. Okay, so I had a patient who in the beginning of treatment only ate soft foods, like there's nothing crunchy or hard. Um, and she went to the dentist and the dentist told mom, um, like she has to eat crunchy things because this is starting to affect the development of her teeth. Um, wow. So, yeah, so it's, you know, for kids who are young, all of these different tastes and smells and textures are so important for their development. So we had, we started working on crunchy things um, to, you know, to help her teeth form the way that they should mm -hmm. and, you know, help her develop the, the muscle tone that she needs in her jaw to be able to chew these things. You know, she, mm. she really struggled to like eat a carrot because it required so much more chewing than she was used to. Um, and I often see kids who struggle with utensils, you know, who don't know how to use a fork and a knife because they, they mainly eat finger foods. So working on some of those, you know, things that come with eating like fine motor skills are, mm. it's so important. Wow, that's really interesting. And I would not have thought about the the softer gums because you're not eating the the harder carrots, but it makes sense um, from a, you know, especially with children, everyone's still developing at that age. And so um, how important that is and how important a well-rounded diet is. So your body's like used to all different types of food and you can kind of not have the same thing every single day. Um, and, and having that variety is just good from, yes, a physical standpoint, but also kind of a mental standpoint too, just feeling comfortable around so many different types of food, especially if you're traveling or with different um, groups of people, kind of like what you talked about earlier with the social aspect. Yeah, yeah. We, we often see kids um, with ARFIT go on what we call food jags. Um, so when they eat the same thing over and over and over again, which is a hallmark of ARFID, but 
um, sometimes a kid will only eat like chicken tenders for a year. Like, you know, that's what they eat. And just like anyone else, they'll get tired of that food. Um, but the difference with someone with ARFID is once they tire of that food and they re start refusing to eat it, there's nothing to take its place, mm. right? And so the diet narrows further, intake becomes even less. And often that's when they come to us is like, you know, they need to be hospitalized. They need, you know, tube feeding. Um, so, that, you know, the variety is important for that reason as well because these kids will eat the same thing over and over again but eventually they will get tired of it mm -hmm. and if we're not able to replace that food with something else um, then we can get in a really scary situation mm -hmm. yeah wow that is so important to um to know and to be open-minded and and i'm really thankful that you're working in this uh area and it's it's definitely something that i bet a lot of families are struggling with and thankful that you're there and and passionate about it and knowledgeable about helping them through it um that's so cool well, well i want to be yeah i want to be mindful of your time today but i want to see if you had any other last words of encouragement or um just yeah any any other thoughts that you have yeah um, you know, always seek treatment if, you know, if this is resonating with you. Um, also know that it's never too late. You know, it's, you know, you're never too old for ARPID treatment. Um, there, you know, there are always things that we can do. So if you're a young adult listening to this um, and, you know, you haven't had ARPID treatment before and you think you need it, it's never too late. Mm, yeah, good word. Because, you know, you're, you're worth it. You're definitely able and capable to have a, a full life and you don't have to struggle if if there's a way to get around it and yeah it's not going to be easy but we're here and there's there's people out there and resources for you to to work through it so yeah thanks everybody for listening thanks savannah for your time today and maybe once again we could have you for another episode um but yeah i hope you have a good rest of your week and everybody listening I hope you have a great day. All right.